Good morning, Westfire. I know what you're thinking. A church consultant's coming to preach. Oh, no. I get it. I'm not sure I would have come if I would have known I was going to be here. I need God's help. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Father God, we love you. We love you. We are deeply grateful that this morning we come and the only attraction is the risen King Jesus. Father God, your servant acknowledges what you already know, that he's not capable nor worthy of the task at hand. So I need your help, Lord. So clarify my thinking and anoint my lips and help me in this time that we have together. May we hear the sound of sandaled feet amongst us. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen and amen. Anybody feel like their hope tank could use a little filling up? Amen. amen. Uh, this morning I got up early. I live in Cambridge. I got up early and uh, look at my news feed and uh, another, the 200th mass shooting in the U.S. Anybody read that? The world's coming apart. But if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, what I want to talk to you about is that hope wins. Did you know that? Hope wins. It always wins. So that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. So open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to his beloved spiritual son, Timothy. Of course, Paul is Timothy's spiritual father, and he's writing to this son in the faith. And he's writing this love letter. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of instruction. But it's carried in the arms of hope. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. So 2 Timothy, beginning right at verse 1 of chapter 1. And we're going to focus on just a smaller set of verses. But let me begin at verse 1. Paul is writing, of course, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers." Recalling your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit, of God gave, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. Now, verse 8 and on is where we're going to focus this morning. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I'm suffering as I am. 
Yet this is no cause for shame because I know who I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. This is God's word. Amen? It's interesting that Paul can write this letter of exhortation. Because you know where Paul is at the time that he's writing this. He's in prison. He's in a Roman prison. And it's not a very nice place. Not that our prisons today are very nice, but this is exponentially worse. And the reason why he's locked up in prison is because he is under the authority of a narcissistic nut job named Nero, who rules over Rome and will allow no competitors. It's all about Nero, and he's not all that keen on Paul. So Paul's locked up. Nero is completely self-indulgent. He was married to a beautiful, head-turning blonde named Papia Sabina. 400 donkeys were kept on hand so that she could bathe in donkey milk. After she bathed, she would be dried off with swan feathers, and then her skin would be massaged with crocodile mucus. Well, until you've tried it. I mean, don't dismiss it, right? (laughs) Nero likes soft skin. And whatever Nero wanted, Nero got. His hope was in himself. The world revolved around him. You know, today we have a word for that. Uh, You know, when when people think the whole world revolves around them and they're completely self-indulgent, it's a Greek word. The word is Kardashian. But in the midst of all that, Paul is filled with hope. Even though he's in the departure lounge of life, he's filled with hope. It's an amazing thing. And I'd like to show you why hope wins for those of us who identify as Christ ones this morning. Look, if you will, to verse number 8. He says to Timothy, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather... Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Hope wins because, friends, Jesus is worth suffering for. Amen? He is. Absolutely he is. Some of you are here this morning and you are suffering. Life is tough. I get it. Some days seem so very long. Stay the course. Run towards the Lord Jesus. Ask for his presence and for his comfort. He's worth suffering for, and and he will help. He will. See See what it says at the end of the verse? How will you get through that? By the power of God. He'll help you get through it. You know, a young man by the name of Charles T. Studd, he was born into a wealthy, wealthy British family in 1860. He's Cambridge educated, was a world class cricket player. His family wealth would become his. A life of prominence and privilege was in his hands. But he ran towards Jesus and the suffering that that would bring. And he gave away his entire inheritance and he became a missionary to China and to India and eventually died there. And he wrote a statement. And you, if you've been in church a while, you're going to know this statement. You've heard it before. He wrote a statement that's really a a summary of the Christian life. He said this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Will last. And as I think about the Lord Jesus, 
And I think about suffering for the Lord Jesus. As Pastor Neil told us, he's the Passover lamb. Right? Stands in our place. He's the heir of the throne of David. He's the good shepherd. He's the only begotten of the very God. He's his beloved baptized son. He's the healer of the blind and the provider of the hungry and the friend of the downtrodden. He's the source of living water and the bread of life. He's the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's our ascended savior. He's God in the flesh who dwelt among us and laid down his life for me and for you. Suffering for Jesus is worth it, amen? It's worth it. And, and, and our friend Paul says, he writes to us in 2 Corinthians, for this light and momentary affliction, this light and momentary, if you feel afflicted this morning, he tells us, this is preparing us for a weight of eternal, you know what the next word is? Glory beyond comparison. That's what's being prepared for us. In the days ahead, friends, you heard Dave, your missionary, mention it. Brothers and sisters in other countries are suffering for Jesus. In the days ahead, our suffering is going to increase. We're going to be misunderstood and we're going to be maligned. Suffering in greater degree is coming, no doubt about it. So I encourage you to decide this morning that, yes, Jesus is worth suffering for. And there's hope in that. You don't have to waste the wilderness. Second thing, look at verse 9. This Jesus saved us and called us to a holy life. Some translations say a holy calling. Not because of our works, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See, hope wins because we are unconditionally called by the king. We've been summoned by the king to this holy life, to this holy calling. By his own purpose and grace. And we're to live out that holy life, that holy calling. Now, let me ask you this. First of all, let me say this. You, you, you live out this holy calling not to make things right with the Lord. Jesus has done that. You live out this holy life, this holy calling, in response to this new relationship. It's a loving response. So let me ask you this. How does your life look different? Your holy life, your whole, how does it look different from those around you? Those you work with, those in your neighborhood, those you go to school with. Do they see that your life is fueled by a, a different reality? If our life looks largely similar to our neighbor or the guy across the street or the people we work with, they have nothing to compare to. We, we need to pour out grace and compassion that grace and compassion that's been poured out on us, right? Romans 5, 8. God showed his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. It's amazing. It's uncomprehendable. Most of the world religions, they can't get their head around that. That amazing grace. And that grace that has been poured out on us, we get to pour out on others because we live this holy life, this completely other life. As followers of Jesus. Jesus gave the model, right? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. We live this holy life like Paul. There's hope in that. You may remember back in September of 2018, 
Dallas, Texas, a young police officer goes into the wrong apartment. Do you remember that? Thinks it's her apartment, goes in, and there's a young man in the apartment, and she shoots this young man who's sitting there completely minding his own business. He's killed. It's a tragedy and a travesty and a mess, and everybody loses. And I don't pretend to know the ins and outs of the case. Uh, My wife and I, our family, we lived in the southern U.S. for 11 years, and so I understand the continuing injustice that often takes place. However, a, a holy life means in the midst of things like that, when injustice is rampant, it feels, we can live differently. You may remember that uh, Botam John's younger brother, Botam John was the young man that was shot. His younger brother, Brant, at the trial and then at the sentencing, the murdered man's younger brother, Brant, goes up to police officer Amber Geiger, who pulled the trigger and killed his brother, and he gave her a hug after she just received the sentence, which in fact many people thought was far too lenient. You may have seen the news clip. What most news outlets did not communicate was what he said after he gave her the hug. He said this, because he was living out a holy life, a holy calling. He said this, I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I love you just like anyone else, and I'm not going to hope you rot and die. I personally want the best for you. And then he looked at his own family that was in the midst of immense grief, and he said this, I wasn't going to say this in front of my family. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botam would have wanted for you. Give your life life to Christ. That's what he said to her. Give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ is the best thing Botam would want for you. See, that's living a holy calling. That's living a holy life. Radically, irresistibly different than a world around you. And, And hope wins, friends, because we are unconditionally called by the king to that kind of a life. That means we have the power to live irresistibly and radically different than the rest of the world, even amongst great injustice. Look now, if you would, to verse number 10. Paul says, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, look at this, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Hope wins if you're a follower of Jesus, Because death has been abolished. Christ has abolished death. Did you know that? We're not, the end game isn't at the funeral home. He's abolished death and brought immortality to light. Pastor Neil is conducting two funerals this weekend, I think, right? And funerals can be such times of immense sadness. I have done many many funerals. I have buried babies and children. I've buried moms and dads and you name it. And it can be crushing. 
We feel like death is won, at least in the immediate. It hasn't won in the ultimate, but in the immediate, we feel like somehow death is won. Uh, just about a year ago, about uh, 13 months ago, I was in my car going to a meeting, and my phone rang, and I answered it, and it was a high school friend. And I knew immediately something was up, just in his voice. And he said, hey, Steve. I said, hey, what's going on? He said, oh, it's not good. His wife, who is also a high school friend, a mom, a vivacious, beautiful, athletic, loved by everyone, funny, bigger-than-life woman with five children, had succumbed to the darkness of mental health and decided she could no longer live in this world. And I said, I'll be right there. And I turned my car around and went over to the house. And the family was devastated, as you might well imagine. And three days later, we had the funeral. Two other children are fairly famous music stars. And so the funeral had 1,300 people at it. Most of them not Christ followers. And I think if you could have placed the sign in the middle of the room, the sign would have said just three letters. The sign would have said, why? Why? For this woman who identified as a follower of Jesus, how does this come about? How does this happen? And frankly, as I stood to address the folks that day, many of them I had known since high school, Entertainment industry folks, other musicians. I had to leave why with God. I had to defer to God. I, I don't know. But on this question, where, I had an answer. Where is your mom? Where is your wife? Where is your friend? Well, she's with Jesus. You know how I know that? Because the verse we just read said that Jesus has abolished death and brought immortality to light. Amen? And we have hope in that. We have hope in that. Paul is on the way out, but in so many ways, he's also on the way in, isn't he? Look at verse 11, if you would. For which I was appointed a herald, which is a preacher, and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. See, Paul had this role to play in the kingdom. He was not nominated or coerced or voluntold. That happens in churches. He was appointed by God. And hope wins this morning, friends, because we have a royal appointment. We have a royal appointment. Uh, this past week, I sat and read almost 1,200 comments from your congregational surveys. And I was so encouraged. I really was. I was incredibly encouraged by the sense that you want God to do something even greater here at West Park. Amen? That God's not done here. Amen? Well, two of you believe that, apparently. <laughs> Is God done here at West Park? No! And you wrote comments that surrounded that. Paul himself wrote to the church in Ephesus and to the church on Gainsborough Road. 
about him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask for or imagine. Don't you want him to do that through West Park? Sure you do. If not, you shouldn't be here. You should be at Denny's this morning. But you're expecting God to do something great. He's going to use you, but, but my question for you is, have you answered your royal appointment? Have you answered your royal appointment? Have you responded? Uh, when I was in school, uh, I was terrible at math. Anybody here, like, math is not your wheelhouse? Yeah. So what I did was I sat next to my friend Dave in every math exam. Because Dave was really good at math. Now, high schoolers, I'm not suggesting this. I'm recounting history. So I would sit next to Dave in math class, you know, and uh, I'd say, hey, Dave. Dave would easy. Give me the answer. And that worked. For years, it worked beautifully. Then we get into high school, about grade 10. And, you know, if you can think back, they, they would give you questions, and the questions would go something like this. A train leaves Montreal going west at 70 kilometers an hour, and a man gets in a car in Windsor going east at 100 kilometers an hour. Calculate the cost of a pita in Thunder Bay. And you're like, oh, figure that out. I'm going to figure that out, right? You can figure it out. And he's like, are you kidding me? But they ask for something else when you get into high school and you have math questions like that. Not only did they want the answer, they, they put three little words down below that. Does anyone know what those three little words are? Show your work. <laughs> so I wrote, please see Dave's paper. <laughs> Listen really carefully, West Park Church. If you're a follower of Jesus today. One day will come, and you get to stand before Jesus and show your work. And he's watching, and he's remembering. Hey, hey, I remember when you taught Sunday school at West Park. Have you seen how many kids you got in your kids? Are those all your kids, or do you bust them in from other places? I'm out there this morning. Goodness gracious. Do you know, I grew up in a non-Christian home. Our milkman, remember when you used to get milk delivered to your house? Our milkman knocked on our door one morning and said to my parents, hey, we notice you don't go to church. And my milkman took my sister. I was five. My sister was seven. Took us to church when I was 10 in my own backyard. Non-Christian parents, I claim Christ Jesus as my Savior. And I was one of those kids in Sunday school the Sunday school teachers wanted to kill. And my parents didn't go to church, so they didn't really have to put up with me. I spent most Sunday school lessons outside the door from fooling around. I'd get home, my parents would say, well, how was the lesson? And I would say, somewhat muffled. <laughs> so I was outside. But they loved me, and they, they took hold of me, and through them I saw Jesus. And it was glorious. Because some of those people fulfilled their divine appointments. What about you? 
Answer your appointment from King Jesus if you haven't because you will experience hope through that like you've never experienced before. And finally, verse 12, friends. Paul says to Timothy, yet this is no cause for shame, the suffering, because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. There's kind of two realities taking place here. Scholars have debated this, but many believe there's two realities taking place in this one verse. Paul is saying, I know Christ Jesus has a hold of me and I can trust him that he has me firmly in his grasp. And at the same time, Paul is saying, you know what? Christ can trust me with that which he has entrusted me, the gospel, and I'm going to stay faithful to it regardless. And Paul says, you know what? Because of that, I have a glorious reward. See, hope wins this morning, friends, because we do have a glorious reward. Let me read that verse to you from the message. Peterson's translation. He says, Paul writes this, but I have no regrets. I couldn't be sure, couldn't be more sure of my ground. The one I've trusted in can take care of what he's trusted me to do right to the end. Paul's earthly journey began on that Damascus road and it ends on a chopping block in Rome. But God would see him through. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 30, right? We hope in you. Our hope is in the Lord. Let me take you back to Nero. Remember Nero? His hope was in himself. His own world. At the age of 29, Nero was lonely and paranoid. His second wife killed his first wife, and Nero kicked his pregnant second wife, and she died. Four years after Paul was beheaded, Nero committed suicide. Nero invested his life in himself, in things that didn't matter, no hope. And I'd suggest today, friends, that's why parents today name this. Charles' mother, she disrobed down uh, of her heavy crimson cloak. The jewelry was removed, and young Elizabeth sat there on the King Edward chair. The gold canopy around them, which you saw around Charles yesterday, held by the Knights of the Garter. And then the Abbey goes totally silent. And as you know, the Archbishop of Can- Canterbury is handed a gold ampulla. It's a kind of an eagle, solid gold. And from that, he takes oil into a spoon and anointed Elizabeth and anointed Charles yesterday in this sacred, almost, almost mythical experience. When he does that, he said this. Be thy head anointed with holy oil as kings, priests, and prophets were anointed. And as Solomon was anointed by king, anointed king by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, so you be anointed, bless and consecrated queen or king over the peoples whom thy Lord, thy God, have given thee to rule and govern. It's been said that it's a moment so old and so hallowed that history can go, not go deep enough to contain it. And you, you see all of this happening, and you watch that on TV, and you go, oh, that's high drama, right? Eh? Wow, that's a big deal. 
Charles has waited a long time for that experience. His mother, I thought she was going to live to be 150. I think he thought that too. He was waiting, waiting, waiting. And now Prince William. I expect one day he'll have that experience. And you say, well, you know what? I can only imagine what an experience like that is like. If you're a follower of Jesus, you won't have to imagine that. Turn over to chapter 4 as we close, friends. And let me read to you. As Paul concludes his letter to his beloved son and to us, he said this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Amen? We know those verses. Read them hundreds of times, some of us. Now look at this. Look at this. Henceforth, or therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Do you hear what Paul's saying? When this all ends, when this is over, when, when Jesus appears, Jesus is going to place upon me a gold crown of righteousness. It's amazing, isn't it? But the verse doesn't end there. There's a comma. There's a comma. And not only to me, but also to all those who've loved his appearing. Do you know who that is? That's you. If you love Jesus. King Jesus is going to say to you, well done. Here is your glorious crown. You looking forward to that? Amen. It's going to be unimaginable. That's why Paul can say we're, we're being prepared for a weight of eternal glory beyond comparison. Hope wins because Jesus is worth suffering for, friends. Hope wins because we are unconditionally called by the king. Hope wins because... In Christ, death has been abolished. Hope wins because we have a royal appointment. And hope wins because we have a glorious reward. Amen? Only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ together will last. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Father God. Father God, we are people of hope this day in the midst of a world that seems to be coming apart at its seams. We look forward to being ever present with you. 
In the meantime, Lord, we have a mission to live out here in the city of London and beyond. May we live that out in a way that's hopeful and gracious and compassionate, long-suffering, so that in us, others will see there is hope in King Jesus alone. Amen and amen.